John 3.16. You know, one caution. Because this text is so familiar, that's always something that's a little dangerous. Um, you know, I, I, we talk about familiarity breeds contempt. I think uh, popularity in Scripture can, can lead to misunderstanding, or we think what's going on there. And I think John 3 is a very complicated chapter. Even though arguably the most famous verse in the Bible is there, um, what actually is happening here is, is, is a little more complicated and actually more mysterious and more beautiful, I think. So uh, may God give us new eyes and new ears to hear. And I'm going to read all the way through chapter, all the way through verse 21. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. By the way, that means he was a member of the Sanhedrin. That will be important later in the gospel because he's at the trial of Jesus. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel? And yet do not understand these things. Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify as to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned. But those who do not believe are condemned already because they do not believe in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. May God bless the hearing of the Holy Word. Let's pray. Lord, open up our eyes and our hearts that through your word proclaimed, we may encounter you, the living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are moments when we realize that we're out of our league. I was thinking about my Boy Scout. I had a Boy Scout moment. You're supposed to start a fire with sticks, okay? And it was wet, okay? Um, don't tell me about that. I'm going to tell you this because they may come back and get me. So it was wet. I kept trying to get the sticks. I kept trying to get the fire. 
and there was an Eagle Scout who was helping me, and it was like taking a half an hour. He looked around, pulled out a match, and lit it. <laughs> that was the beginning of my voice. I'm sorry, I have an Eagle Scout giving me a dirty look right now. I was just an innocent tenderfoot. I didn't know what was going on. Or I remember, I thought I was a guitar player until in high school I went and heard Phil Keggy play guitar, who was a great, uh, he was uh, he's a Christian artist, but he, um, um, oh gosh, I just lost lost the name. Uh, he was considered like one of the greatest guitar players of all time. Um, and Jimmy Hendrix one time heard him play and said, I'm the best, but he's number two. Okay. So after, I was, what a great concert. And I enjoyed it so much, and I was depressed all the way home because I knew I, I wasn't really a guitar player after hearing him play. I had a friend, uh, a guy who's a really distinguished businessman. Probably about, eight, I remember him, was about 70 when we had this conversation. And somehow we were talking about athletics and said, well, I wasn't very good, my kids are good, but I wasn't very good. He said, I was a basketball player. And he was, kind of, he was a little taller than I. And he goes, yeah, I was the center of my high school team. And I felt really good about myself until the city championship, and I had to cover Will Chamberlain. <laughs> I said, how'd that go? He goes, very badly. <laughs> when I was at Princeton, or when I was at Drew doing my doctoral work, I had an opportunity, my professor, one of the professors I was working with, we got invited to come down to Princeton University to sit in on a special lecture that Dr. Peter Brown was giving. And Dr. Peter Brown, at the time, was one of the two, you know, top two experts in St. Augustine in the world. Uh, and I read his books, was very, he was someone I read a lot. And I felt I was a pretty good Augustine scholar. I took a class in Augustine at Princeton. Uh, I was doing my doctoral work in that time period, I was writing on him. Matter of fact, you know, now those of you who came Wednesday night, I'm about to commit the sin of vainglory. But uh, one time, uh, in our PhD seminar, our professor couldn't make it at the last minute, and the class said, well, Bill, you do this lecture. All right? Pretty impressive, right? Okay. Don't hold, hold, your, hold yourself for a minute, okay? So, sorry. so we go to this Texas University, and I was very honored, and I was, there's no way, I mean, I was, I, I had no, any kind of opinion that I would, you know, be anything but a peon in front of Peter Brown. And Peter Brown didn't, it wasn't, I expected to be intimidated by Peter Brown, but it was his grad students. Yeah, they're all from Oxford and Cambridge. And my Latin at that point was somewhere between um, bad and poor, okay? That was when my Latin was at its best, right? And we're reading, you know, we have the, the Augustine text in Latin, and I'm trying to follow along. Well, then they start doing jokes in Latin. <laughs> and then they start quoting obscure parts of Augustine in Latin, and then laughing. And uh, at one point, so, Mr. Bohr, what do you think? I go, Yes, I think that's right. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what they were saying. And so, forever after that, I, I remember driving home feeling, I am not an Augustinian scholar. Okay, I'm like an Augustine middle school person. That's what I felt. Yeah. But it's okay. You know, it's, it's sometimes it's good to know where you stand, right? And in this text, uh, Poor Nicodemus, you know, he's playing checkers and Jesus is playing three-dimensional chess. You know, one thing that's really interesting about this passage, and, 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 you know, there's a sense where we have to understand this passage is a theological construction, okay? It's a very important part of John's theology, okay? So it is, Jesus is speaking here, but Jesus is actually, John's putting in the mouth of Jesus a summary of, of Jesus' thought and, and the meaning of his life. And 
You know, it's funny. We, we treat this like it's a dialogue between Nicodemus and Jesus. But if you got, let's say this was a play, and you're really excited. Hey, I got a play in the, I got a part in the play. There's only two of us in the play. That's great. Who are you? I'm Nicodemus. How many lines do you have? Three. Right? Jesus said, Nicodemus says, hey, you seem to be the real deal. How can anyone be born again? How can these things be? That's all Nicodemus said, right? And the rest of the, the rest of the scene, Nicodemus just looks kind of stupid, right? And I think that's that's on purpose. I mean, I don't know, I don't, I don't know that that's how Nicodemus was in life, but Nicodemus represents a person who should know what's going on. But but does. One other thing that's interesting, by the way, this is uh, I, I don't usually follow the Hallmark holidays, okay? but this is um, this is National Women's Day, okay? And um, even though it looks like one of the three old white guys is going to be president, and I, I say that because now I'm like I'm almost I'm one of those old white guys. But anyway, <laughs> but one thing I think that um, that's right about our church and our tradition is we recognize that God gifts men and women equally. And they have equal opportunities to serve Christ, right? It's not about leading, it's about serving Christ. So we're right about that. It's easy to remember what we're wrong about, but we're right about that. It's a good thing to remember. But, for instance, you compare chapter 4, chapter 4 of um, John's Gospel. That's a dialogue, right? When Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. Matter of fact, in all the Gospels, the most sustained theological conversation he has with any person is with a woman, and not just any woman, a Samaritan woman. A Samaritan woman who had to get water at lunchtime. <laughs> you can you can fill in the fill in the blanks there. Alright? So it's pretty <laughs> Nicodemus should be on the inside. Nicodemus is regulated to a bit part. And during the trial he will speak up, but it won't work out. So Nicodemus not only, I think, represents maybe a certain branch of Judaism, I think Nicodemus also represents a certain branch of Christianity. Uh, John's, John's gospel has a couple bones to pick. Not only with certain kinds of Judaism, but he's not real thrilled with the Jerusalem establishment either. Okay? And so there's a sense where we need to see John chapter 3 as a critique of what John feels is true religion, true faith in Christ, and what a religion that doesn't get you anywhere is. Now, one other thing that's really important to understand, <clears throat> we have to give some some grace to Nicodemus, because Jesus is kind of hard to understand here. Jesus says some pretty esoteric things. Um, I always thought it was funny. I grew up in Christianity. Like if someone became a new Christian, they were told to read the Gospel of John. Okay. The Gospel of John is simple in language, but I think by far it's the hardest gospel to understand. Matter of fact, if you actually read chapter 3, and this is the first time you've ever read the Bible, it might be the last time you read the Bible. That's yeah, kind of confusing. One other thing I think is really important to understand, and this is the Christianity I came out of and was influenced, and I'm thankful for it, but millions of Christians have been influenced by a movement or a theology that is based on a bad translation of this text. The King James Version doesn't, doesn't translate the Greek properly. Okay? And it's, it's actually pretty important theologically, okay? Because Jesus, you know, the idea of being born again is from Nicodemus. 
But Jesus' emphasis here is not on a personal experience of being born again. Okay? And I'm not saying, you know, personal experience is, is, is good and legitimate. But he is emphasizing here that the new birth is heavenly initiated and marked by baptism of both water and spirit. In other words, the new birth is not an experience that you have. Primarily, it's a gift that you receive. It's really important, really important. Okay? It's really important. Because sometimes the way that it's presented, it's like it's something that you, you know, I remember asking Jesus to come into my heart uh, every night for, for a year. Okay? Because I grew up in a church that we were told on a regular basis, you know, you're going to hell. If you, you know, they were nice people. I mean, my ministers were nice, but they still said you're going to hell. And as a 10-year-old, I really didn't want to go to hell. Um, and so I was, I had Jesus come in my life every, every, every night. Now, again, fortunately, eventually I got kind of exposed to Christianity that got you out of that cycle of, you know, being afraid of whether or not you ever lose your salvation or not. But there's something inherently misguided about emphasizing the experience first, right? Okay. What Jesus is saying here, the gift is prior. Okay. You're born from heaven on high and by the water and the spirit. So it's both sacramental and supernatural. And that's really important. Salvation is not something you work up. Salvation is not something you do. It is a gift that you receive from God. And you know, it's, it's, it's helpful to understand. I mean, I've studied John 3 a lot. And I've studied, you know, I've mem- had it memorized as a kid, the whole chapter. Um, I've studied the Greek. I've studied, you know, the different thought lines. I've looked at it in comparison to the Dead Sea Scrolls, which might be important. Um, and I'm here to say that I don't fully understand it, which I think is part of <laughs> that's part of what John's doing here. A, a learned teacher, a theologian, is confused with his conversation with Jesus. And so, part of what the passage is supposed to do is make us humble and to remind us: in this life, we see through a glass dimly. This is true of the mystery of God's work. The good news is that God loves us and saves us from the guilt of our sins, the way of the world, and the despair of death. But there is a vague explanation of how that works. I think that's really important. Keeping the mystery of God's work. We believe in a mystery. You know, it's really interesting. In the early church, when they got to the point where where you had communion, not only were non-believers asked to leave for communion, because you were supposed to have, be believers, but before they explained communion, you had to leave. And the reason was because if you're not a Christian, the mysteries of the faith only confuse you more. It's kind of an interesting thing, right? We sometimes make it so pedantic that you can put it in four spiritual walls or on a bumper sticker. But the early church said, this is a mystery. It's a mystery that's supposed to be lived into. To receive the gift of grace, one has to sometimes be open for a while. I think it's a very interesting, interesting um, kind of con- kind of contrast to the way we think about it sometimes. <laughs> Nicodemus is so confused. It's late at night, okay? I mean, you and I are all dealing with the time change. You know, he's in the middle of the night, okay? And, you know, he's trying to figure out what Jesus is saying. And at one point, Jesus says to him, I've told you earthly things. You do not believe them. How can I tell you heavenly things? The poor Nicodemus, I didn't even understand the earthly things. Mm-hmm. Can we just go back and start over, right? 
It reminds me of a passage in Jeremiah. I love this passage in Jeremiah. Where Jeremiah is just getting pretty frustrated with his job. Okay? One of the worst jobs in the history of the human race. Jeremiah. Okay? He tells the people that they're going to be destroyed. They try to kill him. And what makes it even worse, he ends up being right. And he has to watch his beloved people be massacred. And legend has they end up killing him Okay. Being Jeremiah, you think you have a bad day? You have a bad job? You're not Jeremiah. Jeremiah had a lousy job. Okay. Second worst job in the Bible. I think Moses had the worst job. Okay. I think Moses had the worst job. Okay. When, when God says you can't go into the promised land with the people, I, it's not in the Bible. I think he goes, Okay. So this idea of um, so Jeremiah is really frustrated, and it says this in Jeremiah 12. If you've raced with men on foot and had them worn out, how can you ever run with the horses? In other words, you think it's hard now. You think this is complicated. I mean, Jesus is kind of you think you don't understand this, Nicodemus? What I'm about to say is even more difficult. I also think, as I thought about this this week, something I never thought about before was, we can't know this for sure, but it really seems like Jeremiah 31 is behind John chapter, chapter 3. And uh, you can put it in your notes, but Jeremiah 31 is where the idea of the new covenant is introduced. And I really think that this is... John chapter 3 is really fleshing out what the new covenant is, right? Uh, I'll just read part of John, or Jeremiah 31 to you, but it says in Jeremiah 31, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant in the house of, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not like, be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. In other words, it's the law, faith in God is not an external thing. And I think that's part of what we're being told here in John, right? Okay, John, Nicodemus is a good guy. Nicodemus is a leader. He's a teacher. He's a Pharisee. Jesus' family very likely could have been members of the Pharisee sect. There's reasons why we think that. So Jesus and Nicodemus have a lot in common. But Jesus is saying, your way of thinking about God is not right. God is not to be found in an external set of laws. God is not necessarily to be found in an experience. God is not to be found in a bureaucracy. God is found because he, he gives it to you. It's a gift. You know, it's interesting. Invisible things make us nervous. We're very concrete as humans, right? Okay. Now, for instance, we should, we should be able to handle this Epidemic. Okay. So we have the science, we have the medical technology. Okay. But what, what's problematic? First of all, the uncertainty, right? Okay, a little bit of the uncertainty, mixed messages doesn't help, right? Um, but there's something about something we can't see that makes us um, particularly nervous. It, it's interesting. We did a podcast this week um, about an article in the Atlantic Magazine, and it reminded me, uh, it reminds me of the Albert Camus' book, The Play. And it's written in 1947, and the plague is a metaphor for France under occupied, uh, occupied when Nazis occupied France. Okay, so it's kind of a metaphor for how people acted 
when they were being taken over by by an evil force. And some people collaborated and made money off the Nazis. Other people did the right thing, and that's 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 true. But one of the things that's really interesting that the article says, and, and Camus' book did as well, you can really tell a society a lot about society by how they handle these kind of things, right? Because invisible, we don't know what to do with something invisible, right? Okay, and and there's a sense where we're we are used to trying to control our environment. And I think that's what we do sometimes with God. Why do we create either, you know, being a Christian means you don't do the following things? Why do sometimes we get wrapped up in church bureaucracy? Why do we, some churches emphasize experience, okay? The reason you go to church is so you feel good, get uplifted. Why do both liberal and conservative Christians kind of drift towards political agendas? Because it's more concrete, right? The idea of following the invisible God's not easy. But it's the only way. And that's part of what Jesus is trying to tell Nicodemus here. The eternal life that is offered in Jesus is both initiated and completed by God. Not something that we do. Okay. How many of you have ever seen a John 3.16 sign at a sporting event? Okay. Now, some of us remember, some of you don't, but uh, there was one particular character in the 70s and 80s that seemed to be ubiquitous, right? Uh, his name was a rainbow, the Rainbow Man. Remember, he had like a rainbow afro, a fake afro wig, okay? And he would always be like behind home plate. He was at the NBA Finals. He would be in the end zone at football games with John 316. Uh, he was at the end of the one time. He got arrested at the 1980 Russian Olympics. Okay. 316, everywhere. Now, this guy, you know, his name was um, Roland Frederick Stewart. Okay? Now, and people, I mean, he, he was not, he didn't have any money. As a matter of fact, sometimes he was homeless. So they were thinking that you know, wealthy Christians would donate their seats to him or buy a ticket for him. Uh, Roland's life didn't quite work out. Uh, <clears throat> apparently, um, Roland had some issues. He got arrested because he started taking stink bombs to places. Uh, he tried to put a stink bomb in the Crystal Cathedral. Which I, got, I, don't, I don't really blame him for that one. Um, <laughs> tried an American Music Awards, very random. And unfortunately, he had a temper. He was married four times. He got arrested because he attempted to strangle his fourth wife because she didn't hold the three John 3.16 sign right. Okay. Now, there's something a little bit of missing your, your mission theology right there. Right? Uh, he eventually got arrested because he's trying to get a couple people to hold signs up they wouldn't, so he kidnapped them. Um, and, and poor Ron is still in jail, serving consecutive sentences. By the way, just as an aside, I mean, obviously the guy's loony, right? He's crazy. And he and probably 50 to 60% of our prison population we're using our prison population to take care of our mental health issues. Okay, all right. So that's 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 sad. But um, anyway, so we can say that Rainbow Man didn't maybe do a good job witnessing for Christ, right? By ending up in jail, probably don't want to throw stink bombs or strangle people if you're trying to talk about the love of Jesus. But the history of attitudes and behaviors of Christians things that Christian churches have officially sanctioned, that behavior is a hundred times worse 
than what Crazy Ron did. So maybe rather than carrying around John 3.16 signs, maybe we should tattoo John 3.17 on our hearts. Or maybe either have an usher or a deacon each week with a rainbow wig on stand up front with John 3.17. I'm sure I'm not going to get very many volunteers for that. Maybe even more importantly, maybe your pastor needs to have John 3.17 at the top of his sermon. In other words, John 3.16 and John 3.17 go hand in hand. And when we say the gospel of the world, we're also saying verse 17, right? God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world but that through him the world might be saved. So let me just throw this out as an idea. If the eternal God of the universe sent the incarnate Son to be born, to live, to teach, to die, and be resurrected, to redeem us, if the Son was sent not to condemn us, okay, if God's not condemning us, maybe Christians should get out of the condemning business. Amen. Doesn't mean everything goes, but that's up to God to figure some of that out, right? (laughs) Maybe we can start being a little more critical once the world knows how much about life we are, right? It's it's not without its irony that we talk about the love of God and we drop out the other half of the message, okay? This season is the season of God's salvation going out to the world. Now, Jesus does talk about judgment here, doesn't he? Right? Some levels he says the judgment's already on you. You know, right? If you don't believe, you're already you're already kind of living and experiencing what it means to be without God. So there's a sense where you know we do kind of if without God we can almost we get our just desserts almost, right? There's a little bit of that there. But it, what's important here is this idea of darkness and final. I mean, in some levels, this whole thing is it begins with Nicodemus coming at night. And it ends with Jesus talking about darkness. Now, in the early church, uh, a Nicodemian was a name that was given to someone who was secretly a Christian. Nicodemus kind of becomes infamous in the history of the church because there were people, particularly during times of persecution, who were, you know, Christians privately. Now, you know what? I'm not too hard on those folks, okay? If being a Christian means you could get up being eaten by the lions... We'll give those people a pass, right? Okay? Right. You know, we sometimes have trouble navigating time change, right? Okay, so nobody nobody had to risk being burned at the stake to get here today. But darkness can also be a metaphor, and, and in John's gospel, it's a metaphor for all these things. It's a metaphor for a fear of being seen, right? How many of us are really afraid if people really saw who we were, they wouldn't accept us or they condemn us, right? But remember, God didn't come to condemn the world, right? Sometimes darkness can be a a symbol for ignorance. Frequently, it's a symbol for ignorance in the New Testament. And yes, there's a lot of people who function out of ignorance, right? A little bit of knowledge, a little bit of prudence, a little bit of common sense, a lot of science. Things might be going a little different, right, with people. But how about that's true in our own life, right, as well? 
how much of our emotional life, how much of our spiritual life is really flows from an ignorance. I mean, darkness can be about evil. Jesus explicitly says that, you know, there's a darkness in this world. You're not to be people of darkness. You're to walk in the light of God. Darkness can also be about our shadow selves, the part of us that aren't under, that's not under grace. That part of us is still based in fear or based in prejudice. Or that part of us that feels still, you know, hears those voices from our childhood and makes us feel bad. The part of us that, that feels pain and we find ways to numb that pain. That can be darkness as well. And, and the idea here is Jesus has come to bring us into the light. He is the light. Whatever your darkness is, the love of God by God's gift, by being born of water and the spirit, by being born from on high, by receiving the gift of God's salvation, we can move from darkness into light. And sometimes it is a process, right? Okay. But it's important for you to know, regardless of what state you are, whatever darkness is still lurking around inside your mind or your heart or your life, God loves you. God does not condemn you. God has given you God's gift. And so our call is to walk into that light, right? And walk into that light. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand and have the same words of the Apostles.